Can I have a seat? It's so good to be with you this morning. Thank you for, uh, for making it to church on this uh, time where you lost an hour of sleep. How many of y'all are fired up about losing an hour of sleep? Anybody? Oh, man. I won't bore you with a story, but uh, I had a rough time getting up this morning. But y'all pay me to be here, so here I am. Um, I want you to open up your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. If you don't have a Bible, that's all right. I'm going to have those scriptures on the screen behind me. And I want to begin today, don't do this often, but I want to begin today with a quote. It's a pretty famous quote from Martin Luther King. And he was talking about how to deal and respond to, or deal with rather, and respond to darkness and evil when we are victims of it. And he said this, he said, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, but only love can do that. I love that statement. It's a powerful one. Saying that the most powerful, most effective way that you can fight against darkness that is um, kind of presented to you is not with more darkness, but with light. And the most powerful way that you can counteract hate that is given towards you is not with more hate, but it's with love. And as amazing as Martin Luther King was, he actually, believe it or not, did not come up with those thoughts. Um, it was Jesus, 2,000 years before, uh, before MLK even showed up on the scene in the Sermon on the Mount, talked about this, about how the most effective and powerful way you could ever counteract those two things in your life is with love. Now, it's important to keep in mind today that, um, that Jesus is in a series of about six statements where he's beginning the statement with, you've heard it said, and he talks about how the culture is sort of living their life and the way the culture views certain things, but then he says, but I'm saying to you, and then he talks about how new kingdom citizens or believers are supposed to respond and supposed to act. And so one of the things that, that I'm realizing is he's gone through this, these six statements where he's like, hey, the world's doing it this way, but I'm saying that if you're a believer, you're gonna do it this way. One of the things I've sort of realized through Matthew is just how radically countercultural each one of these statements are. It's just how against the grain, against the flow, against the norm of how we normally live life and how culture normally responds to it. And, and that's what we're gonna see Jesus talk about today in this really beautiful and countercultural way Jesus is gonna tell us how you as a believer are supposed to respond to insult, to theft when somebody takes from you, and injustice. And, and these, these statements are really so radical. They're so contrary to the way that our human nature wants to respond to being insulted and, and being wrong that I don't think it's even possible to do it without the Holy Spirit of God. And so he's really speaking to believers here today. He's speaking to people that are indwelt with the, with the Holy Spirit because that's the only way you're ever gonna have the power to live out these things. They're so, so crazy and so radical. So let's jump into the text here, Matthew chapter five, verse 38. And Jesus said this, he said, you've heard it said, in other words, this is how the culture does things. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, and this is how new kingdom citizens are gonna live, believers are gonna live. He says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. 
And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, these are, these are arguably some of the most misinterpreted verses in the whole Bible. Look, look at that. For, let's go back to uh, verse 39. Maybe. Hello? Never mind. Okay, so he says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. And, and people have uh, interpreted that over the years to mean that Jesus is teaching us that Christians should be pacifists. Um, people have argued over the years that this is, this is the reason that it's okay for folks when they go in the military to be conscientious objectors. People have argued that Jesus is teaching absolute non-resistance by Christians towards any form of evil. But when you think about it, guys, that can't be what Jesus is implying. That can't be what he's saying, that we as, as Christians are to be just completely non-resistant to the evil of the world because one, we see it in Jesus' life. He's constantly resisting evil. You see him drive out the money uh, changers in the temple with a whip. Um, he, he fought passionately against Satan when he was being tempted to sin. Um, he confronted the religious leaders when they were about to stone a woman who was caught in the act of adultery and stopped them and wouldn't let them do it. And I'd go on and on. But the Bible, unless it contradicts itself and it doesn't, it simply can't mean that what Jesus is teaching us here is that Christians are to sort of just allow evil to occur to us and around us. Okay, so what does he mean when he's like, do not resist evil? And it gives all these examples. What, what Jesus means is this, that as a Christ follower, we don't respond to evil passively. What he's saying is that a Christ follower, we respond to evil differently than the rest of the world. Okay, we respond to evil differently than the rest of the world. So let's look again at the text. And, um, and let's see what he says. Matthew chapter five, verse 38. He says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now what he's doing here is again, is he's, he's telling us how the world typically responds when they're insulted or harmed. And he said, it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now he's directly quoting the Old Testament here. And, and that phrase came from an old uh, law that predated Moses called the Lex Talionis. And this, this concept of an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth meant this, that your response to an evil that was committed against you toward another person wasn't to exceed the level that they committed against you. So, so if somebody uh, did something against you, you could only respond to them and to the level that they hurt you. And so if somebody came out and plucked out your eye, eye for an eye, what, what the law said is the only thing you can do is pluck out their eye, and then it's got to stop there. If somebody comes in and punches you in the mouth and knocks out your tooth, and, then you can punch them in the mouth and knock out their tooth, but you can't go any farther than that. Now, here's what's interesting, is that the people of the time would have heard that and thought that this concept of eye for an eye and tooth uh, for a tooth was actually pretty merciful. It would have been a merciful response. Because what people would often do is if somebody came and, and uh, somebody killed your cow, then they would respond by going and killing that person's cow and, and then burning down their house. Or if, if somebody came and beat up your brother, you would go beat up their brother and then you'd go kill their other brother. And so people were responding to harm against them with further violence and vengeance. And this idea comes along of eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. And people are like, that's merciful. That's showing restraint to only do that. But then Jesus comes along 
And he says, for my people, for believers, for for citizens of this new kingdom, we're gonna take this merciful response to evil, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, and we're gonna take it to a whole other level, a whole other level. All right, so let's read it one more time. He says, you've heard it said, it was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, and here comes this sort of first uh, radically countercultural phrase. He says, do not resist the evil one. You've heard it said eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I'm telling you, do not resist the one who is evil. And so church, when you and your life are faced with, with evil and with hurt and with things that are coming against you from this, from this world, the key to understanding what Jesus is calling you to do is to look at that phrase, do not resist. Okay, what does he mean there? When he says, somebody has evil coming at you, do not resist it. Well, that phrase in the English, when we sort of hear that, we think it carries with it the idea of passivity, right? And that we're, we're not to respond to it in any way. In the English, that's sort of what it means. But in, in the original language, the word resist actually means to respond with vengeful anger. And so what Jesus is literally saying there, he's like, he's like, do not resist the one who is evil. He's not saying passively sit back and let evil happen to you or endure evil, right? What he's saying is when evil happens to you, don't respond with vengeful anger, okay? His point is not that Christians passively sit back and let evil happen to them. His point is that we're actually to respond to evil but we're responding to evil in a Christ-like and a culturally different way than the world, okay? And this God-honoring response, this, this sort of responding to evil with love and responding to evil not in vengeance, is, it's a theme you see through the, ho- the whole Bible. You, you see that same response from Joseph back in the Old Testament when his brothers sold him into slavery. He, he becomes a, has a position of power and he finally meets his brothers again. He could have had him killed, but instead he embraces them and he loves them and he cares for them. You see that same response when David, when David could have had the opportunity to kill Saul. Saul was trying to kill David in the desert. David had this opportunity, he was in a cave. He saw Saul and he could have killed him and it would have been over, but David didn't. He didn't kill him, he gave him grace in that moment. You see that same spirit when Stephen the deacon was being stoned for his belief in Christ and he cries out that, that God would have mercy on the people that are stoning him. And you see it, for crying out loud, at the cross of Jesus. When Jesus is enduring the most unjust suffering in the history of the world and he doesn't retaliate, he says, God, will you forgive them? For they know not what they do. Okay, and I want you, I want you to hear this. Don't miss this statement right here. At the end of the day, what Jesus is teaching us through these verses is that kingdom citizens are not pacifists when we're confronted with evil, but we're actually activists. But our activism against evil is always presented in love, not with hatred and vengeance. That's his whole point. We're not pacifists, we're activists, but our activism against evil is presented every single time in love. And so stop for a second, guys. I want you to think about like maybe in a time in your life where somebody's wronged you or hurt you or insulted you. You might be going through it right now. Maybe it's in the past, it was, maybe it was at work. A boss treated you with disrespect or dishonor um, or treated you as a second class citizen. Maybe it was your roommate or your boyfriend or girlfriend or your spouse. Maybe it was on the highway, like happened to me two days ago when an 18 year old kid in his F-350 truck almost ran me off the road. That's not easy to respond in a Christ-like manner. Um, 
you know, maybe it's because of your political views or the color of your skin. When you're insulted, when you're hurt by somebody because of those things, what's your natural response? And what's your knee-jerk, fleshly response in that moment? It's to respond with an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Our just natural response in those moments is to deliver back to those people an insult to the level that they hurt us. But again, Jesus comes into the scene and he says, look, my, my followers aren't gonna react that way. My followers aren't gonna respond the way that the rest of the world does. We're gonna be different. And so let's look back at the text again because what he does now is he gives us three examples. He gives us three examples of like what this is gonna look like when someone comes at you with evil or harm or insult and how you respond. So let's look at verse 38 one last time here. It says, so you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Do not respond with vengeful anger, he says. And then he gives the first example. He says, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, what I wanna do is I just, I wanna give you the point that Jesus is making. I don't do this often, but I'm gonna do it today. I'm gonna put the point up on the board. This is the point Jesus is making when he says, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one. In point one, he's saying that when insulted, citizens of the kingdom respond with disarming dignity. That when you're insulted, citizens of the kingdom respond with disarming dignity. And the first example he gives with this um, is when you're slapped on the cheek. He says, what you do is you turn around and you offer him the other cheek. Now, again, this is probably the most uh, misinterpreted verse in the Bible because throughout the centuries, this verse has been interpreted to mean that Christians shouldn't defend themselves, that that you're saying, you know, hey, if, if you're not supposed to be a victim of physical violence, but if that happens, then you simply don't respond to it. But actually what Jesus' point is making, is not talking about physical violence, he's talking about an insult, how Christians should respond to being insulted. Because in, back in the day in Jewish culture, the most demeaning and insulting thing that you could do to somebody would be to slap them on the face. Um, in the Jewish culture, sort of the, the modern day equivalent would be to call somebody a racial slur. It's the most insulting thing that you wanted to do to somebody. So if you really wanted to hurt somebody's feelings, if you really wanted to demean them, if you really wanted to insult them, you'd walk up and you'd slap them on the face, okay? And so Jesus tells us, hey, turn the other cheek. He's not saying that if someone is beating you up, you, you simply sit there and take it. He's saying that as a new kingdom citizen, when somebody insults you, and even if they really insult you, instead of seeking vengeance in that moment, Instead of retaliating, instead of slapping them back, instead of insulting them back, instead of trying to shame them, Jesus says in that moment when you're insulted, you just, you simply, you turn. And you offer to let them insult you again. And you see, when you, when you do that, you've, you've responded not in anger and not in, in visions, just like they, they did to you, but you've re responded in humility. And you've responded with dignity, right? And so you, you, you've kept your dignity by not stooping to their level. And so when you turn the cheek and then, and then they slap you again, they insult you again after you refuse to insult them, then all in the world that does is reveal their evil. There's a, um, 
there's a quote by this guy named W, I don't know what his first name is, but his last name Wink, and he's talking about this call that Jesus places on our lives to turn the other cheek, and I love how he described it. He said, turning the other cheek is a nonviolent direct action. He says, a practical, it's a practical strategic measure for empowering the oppressed. I love that. A practical strategic measure for empowering the oppressed. He said, turning the other cheek seizes the initiative from the oppressor. It overcomes fear. It reclaims the power of choice, all the while maintaining the dignity of the oppressor. Again, I love that, that phrase, a practical strategic measure for empowering the person that's oppressed. In other words, when you turn the other cheek, that's not a symbol of weakness. That's a display of power. That's a display, a display of strength. But you do it in a way that keeps both your own dignity and the dignity of the person that just insulted you. And so what does this look like for us? Because um, typically when you're trying to insult somebody, you don't slap them on the face in our culture. At least hopefully you don't. But so what does that look like in our culture? What is it? Normally you're insulted with words. It's somebody says something to you, somebody responds to you on, um, you know, Twitter, which is from hell. And so you're, you're insulted really through words. And so what does this look like for us? Well, I was thinking about some times in my life where I, somebody insulted me and I thought about something that actually happened right there in this gym on about the, well, the chairs were up. It's about the fourth row. And, um, and I had been going through cancer and I had just been diagnosed with cancer. We'd sort of gotten the initial test back and they weren't really good. So we didn't know if I was gonna live or I was gonna die. We had no clue. We were waiting on the other test results. And we were a lot smaller back then. This was in 2005. And so everybody in the church knew it and everybody was sort of rallying around me and praying for me and stuff. And people were constantly calling the office and emailing, just wanting to know an update, how I was doing and how they could help. And so the elders came to me one, one day and they said, would this coming Sunday, would you, would you just sort of take the sermon and talk about, you know, what you're going through, tell, tell our family the story, and, and just talk about what God's showing you by going through cancer. And I sort of, sort of protested at first. I literally said, I, you know, I don't really want it to be about me, but, but the elders were like, no, really, we feel like this would be really good for, for our church. And so that Sunday, I didn't open up the Bible and say, turn to da-da-da-da-da, like I do every single Sunday. I just said, hey, I grabbed a stool, set it right here. I think this stage was the same one. This thing's older than my children. And I just sat down and, and sort of told the story of me getting diagnosed with cancer and told the story of everything that God was teaching me. And then we worshiped and, and went on. And after the sermon, this young guy comes walking right up to me. And I'm in my mind thinking, you know, he's probably gonna come up to me and say, I'm so sorry, I'm praying for you. Because a lot of people did that morning. But he walked up. And literally the first thing out of his mouth was, he said, I guess the Austin Stone is all about Matt Carter now, huh? He said, I can't believe you just took an entire Sunday and talk all about you. And so honestly, that was incredibly hurtful. That was incredibly insulting. One, I'm going through cancer for crying out loud. And he doesn't come, hey bro, I'm sorry, you're maybe dying, you know? he says, hey, I guess church is all about you now. And two is that I, I've taken incredible steps throughout the years to ensure that this church was not about me. There's a reason there's multiple preachers. There's a reason that my title is not lead pastor of the Austin Stone. It's because I, I wanted it to be about Jesus and not about me. So I, I definitely had the, the ability to defend myself. I definitely had a response. And what I wanted to do was just rip into this kid um, I wanted to just 
tear him apart, but the spirit would not let me do it. And so here's what turning the other cheek sort of looked like for me when I was insulted. I just looked at him. And again, this is why I say only the spirit of God that lives in you is gonna give you the ability to do this. Because I was pretty hot. But the spirit sort of took over and I looked at him, I said, man, I was like, brother, I am so sorry that I came across that way. I was like, it certainly is not my heart. That was not the heart of our elders that asked me to do this. And so if that sent the wrong message, man, I'm, I'm so, 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 so sorry. Would you please forgive me? And it sort of took, took him back because he came in pretty intense. But here's the thing, had I gotten angry, had I ripped into him, had I even defended myself, for heaven's sakes, if I'd insulted him in return, then all that that does is just like show that everything he said about me was actually true. But when I turned the other cheek, it sort of disarmed him. And then the ball right then is, is pretty much in his court. And he sort of just kind of turned around and walked away after that. But Jesus says that that's how, if you're filled with the spirit of God, that's how you're gonna respond. That if you're a citizen of the new kingdom, that that's, that's how you're gonna react when somebody comes at you and they say something insulting, even if it's really, really insulting. Jesus says, citizens of the new kingdom respond to being insulted with disarming dignity. Now here's number two, let's read it. Verse 38, it says, you've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the evil one, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And in verse 40, second example here of what to do when you're confronted with evil. He said, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. So here's point number two today, is that when taken from, when taken from, citizens of the kingdom respond with radical generosity. When you're taken from citizens of the kingdom, Christ followers are gonna respond with radical generosity. Understand kind of what Jesus is saying. You gotta understand the context here. And back in the day, men basically owned two sort of articles of clothing. They owned a tunic, which is kind of like a shirt. And you would have two or three tunics maybe. And so those are a little more common. But then you had an outer garment, it was like a robe or your coat. And typically people would only own one coat. And so the point is, is that the coat is something of far more value. So Jesus literally says, hey, somebody comes along and they take your shirt from you. You don't respond by taking their shirt. You don't even respond by giving them your other shirt. Jesus says, you, if someone takes your shirt from you, you respond by giving back to them something that's of greater value, which is the coat. And I was, I was thinking when I was preparing for the sermon, I was like, I, how do I apply this? Because, you know, probably some of you have been, had things stolen before and things taken from you, but I couldn't think of any good examples. So instead of talking about sort of what to do, I decided to tell you a story about what not to do when someone takes from you. And in order to do that, I wanna tell you about my good friend, Pastor Hallem Suh. Now, if y'all know Hallem, if you don't know Hallem, Hallem is a, a Korean pastor that's here on staff with us. And um, he's a pastor of theology and he preaches a lot and that sort of thing. And, and um, before I tell you this story, I wanna give you some caveats about my friend Hallem. He's one of my best friends in the world. And hands down, guys, I'm not just saying this because I'm about to tell a funny story about him, but hands down, this guy is probably the godliest man I've ever known. 
I mean, he, he, is, he is the real deal. He loves Jesus, and he is one of the most gentle and kind, spirit-led men of God I've ever known. If I outlive him and I preach his funeral, I'm gonna talk about that. God should have ever known. But he has not always been that godly. And before he came to Christ, he lived in a really poor neighborhood in, in kind of inner city San Antonio. Grew up really poor. It was a rough um, Rough neighborhood, and so before he was a Christian, Harlem has told us before that he was a fighter. He was sort of a street brawler. And um, if you ever if you ever get the chance to hang out with Harlem, look at his knuckles, because all over his knuckles are these little scars. And I asked him one time when I first met him, like, dude, what are the scars all over your knuckles? And he's like, those are people's teeth. And um, I was like, okay. And uh, and so. I've, over the years, I've, I've tried to get more stories out of him. And I was like, Colin, what's like the most people you ever fought at one time? He said, six. And I was, really? And I was like, what happened? He goes, I won. <laughs> That's all he said. Um, so th- this, guy is a, this guy is a brawler. And so um, I asked him one time, we were in a, we were in a hotel room at a, at, a, at a conference one time. And I'm going somewhere with this story, I promise you. But I, I was at a hotel room one time at a conference with Colin. And we were talking about him growing up and and, um, and I looked at him, and I said, dude, are you really that tough? Like, are you really that tough? Are you, you kind of exaggerating? Because let me tell you about me. I, I didn't get in a ton of fights growing up, but I was in the cork at S&A&M. And I, yep, whoop. And I um, had, had less hair back then. But then I, when I was in the core, it was in the 90s. And it was just a season of time where the cork of cadets was like the Wild West from 92 to 96 when I was there. I don't know where the adults were. I have no idea. Um, but it was insane. And we used to, all the time, get in these major, like rest, intense wrestling matches with our upperclassmen. And when I was an upperclassman, our lowerclassmen, and they were just a hair short of a, of a street fight. And here's the thing, I'm before Jesus, it's truth. I never lost one time in my, in my college career. I know I'm old and fat now, but I, I, was, I was a stud back in the day. And so I'm looking at Hall M, Mr. Cora Cadet that never lost in college. And I'm like, bro, are you really that tough? And he's like, I, you know, he's godly now. He's like, I, I don't, maybe. I was like, you know what? Let's go, you and me. True story. He's like, let's go, right here. And he's like, you wanna fight? I was like, I don't wanna fight, but we need to wrestle. We're gonna wrestle. He's like, okay. So he stands up. I sort of went low and grabbed his leg and tried to sweep and get leverage on him. And he, and he, he literally just kind of stood like that and, and it didn't move. And so I was like, all right, I'm, I'm gonna dig down deep. I'm gonna, I'm gonna dig down deep. I'm going, I'm going all in here, right? I'm going all in. I'm digging back. 1994, Cork and I, I literally took every ounce of power that I had and I tried to get him up. And again, he, he does not move. And it was about that time, I'm like, I think I might be in trouble here. And he did some sort of move, true story, just flipped me over, wrapped me up, and I'm laying there and I can't move a muscle. And he's got me pinned down and I look up and he's just smiling at me. He says, you done, pastor? I was like, yes, I am done. Get off me. But I I tell you all of that to tell you that what I'm actually, the story I'm gonna tell you actually happened. He he grew up in, in San Antonio, really poor, and he saw this track suit, this Nike track suit that he wanted really badly when he was like 12 years old. And so he, he went to work at a snow cone stand. They said they were paying him two bucks an hour. 
And he worked all these hours to buy this Nike tracksuit that was $120 because he really, really wanted this Nike tracksuit. By the way, I've got a picture of Hallem when he was about that age. I want to see it. Let's check it out. There he is. And, uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, let's see the tracksuit. He actually went and found, that's the tracksuit. That's what he spent hours and hours trying to find. So he finally makes the money after working at this the snow cone stand, two bucks an hour, he buys it. He's feeling all proud about himself. Didn't have a ton of money, shows up to school. And uh, everybody's like, oh man, cool, purple Nike tracksuit. And he takes it off during gym class. And he, when he came back at the end of class, it was gone. And I asked Talim, I was like, hey, what, what'd you do? You know, how'd you respond? And he said, man, I'm ashamed of this now. <laughs> he said, this is not godly. But he said, I literally went throughout the day and I found every kid in the class and I beat them all up until they, until they confessed which one had it. And he said, the bad part was is that nobody confessed to having it. And I beat up like 14 kids that day. And so here, here, here's the thing. <laughs> like I said, sometimes you, to know what to do, you got to know what not to do. And, and how he responded is literally the complete opposite of how Jesus says we respond when we're, when we're taken from. Jesus says if somebody takes something of value from them, you don't beat them up. Um, you respond by giving them something of greater value. Somebody takes your $120 Nike purple tracksuit, you take off your Air Jordans and you give them that also. And so when taken from, a citizen of the kingdom responds with radical generosity, okay? Last one here. Let's look at verse 41. He says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. So this is the third example that Jesus gives of how we're to respond in a Christ-like way when someone's wronged us or sin evil. He goes, when when anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles, okay? So here's the last point, point number three. When experiencing injustice, citizens of the kingdom respond with humanizing humility. When experiencing injustice, citizens of the kingdom respond with humanizing humility. Believe it or not, guys, this might be the hardest one. I guarantee you that when Jesus, and I'll tell you why in a second, but when Jesus made this statement that if anybody forces you to go one mile, you go with them too. I guarantee the the original audience heard that and they went, say what, Jesus? You want us to do that? Like, Jesus, I, I don't think I can do it. And they would have responded this way for this reason because Jesus was referring to a specific incidents in the culture. And the thing you gotta understand is that the Jews were under Roman occupation when Jesus said this. And so the Jews hated the Romans, hated them. The Romans treated the Jews like second-class citizens. They had absolute power over them. And so what, there was a law that said that if a, a Roman soldier was carrying his equipment, he, he would have like this kit that was all his stuff. And if he was carrying all his stuff and was pretty helmet, you had a helmet, you had a shield, you had a sword, that if he saw a Jewish person, he could go over to the Jewish person and he could hand him all his stuff and the Jewish guy would be forced to carry his equipment, but he could only carry it, you only, only could force him to do it a mile. And so if a, if a Jewish person refused, if they're like, no, I'm not gonna do it, then you, they could be beaten, they could be severely punished. Um, and so the Jews just hated this law, hated it. It was, it was the epitome of cultural injustice at the time. It was the, this constant reminder that, that they were second-class citizens and they uh, didn't have any of the power 
that the Romans had. And so, but again, this is, this is a difficult thing for them and, it, and it'd be a difficult thing for us. It's a difficult thing for us in this culture when, when we feel like that somebody is using their power to abuse us. We hate it as Americans. We fought wars over this stuff, for crying out loud. When people like, take uh, their power and they make us feel and experience a second-class citizen existence. But Jesus comes on the scene in what would have been a radical, radical statement. People's jaws would have dropped. He said, as new kingdom citizens, as, as my followers, as people filled with the Holy Spirit of God, if a Roman soldier comes up to you and he asks you to carry his stuff a mile, then what you do is when you get to the end of that mile, you carry it another mile, even if he doesn't ask you to. Now, I wanna be real clear on something here. Jesus is not saying that as Christians, we don't fight for justice. He's not saying that as Christians, we don't fight for equality. As a matter of fact, Commands for believers to fight for justice and equality are all over the Bible. But what Jesus is doing is he's addressing how we fight for justice and equality. Jesus is, is teaching us here with this verse is that, we, is that we do fight for justice, but we do it with service and we do it with love and we do it with humility, not with vengeance or anger. And so when you think about it, when you think about it, what Jesus is instructing us to do is, is really beautiful and it's brilliant. Because think about it, the guy comes up, he, he just views you as, a, as an object, hey, carry my stuff. You, you don't complain, you pick it up, you start carrying it for him, and then you get a little while away and you, you start asking him about him. You ask him his story. You ask him about his wife, you ask him about his kids. That's how he got into the army. Ask him about his dreams, ask him about his hopes, ask him about what life is gonna look like down the road for him. And then, and then when you get to the end of the mile, he looks at you and in his brain, he's thinking, that guy wasn't half bad. He's like, oh, okay, man, you can go. And you look back at him and you say, no, you know what, what I'd like to do, I'd like to carry it for you one more mile. I got a feeling that that, could, that has the potential and that has the power to radically change the way that that Roman thinks about you. When he walks away from you, I guarantee you he can't stop thinking about the fact that he took advantage of you with his power, but then, but then he couldn't stop thinking about the fact that in, in response you loved and served him to a greater degree than he even forced you to. And I was thinking about this, that kind of what Jesus is saying to these people and saying to us is, as a Jewish citizen back then, you definitely did not have the power to change that one Roman law but you do have the power to change that one Roman heart. And I think Jesus' point is you respond in such a way that the next time that happens, maybe the Roman soldier looks at that person differently, maybe carries his own stuff. I think that's what Jesus is saying. I saw a beautiful picture of this um, in, the, in a book I read a while back called Unbroken. Anybody read the book Unbroken? Um, I, if you haven't, you can leave because I'm about to ruin it for you, um, sort of. Yeah, I'm ruining it for you. Um, so this guy is named Louis Zamperini, and he was an Olympic runner. He was not a believer. He was in uh, the Air, I can't remember, Air Force or, or the Navy, but anyway, he got shot down over the Pacific, and he was taken prisoner of war by the Japanese. And he spent a long time in a Japanese, basically the whole war in a prison camp. And, and the injustice 
that was done to him in his time there is so intense and so violent and so dehumanizing that I didn't even want to share any stories with you in the sermon. It was just so vile, the way that he was insulted and mocked and and stripped naked and just literally tortured over and over and over again within an inch of his life. Some of the things they made him do were so gross, so grotesque. It just, it would defy imagination. And so when he, when he got out, the allies won the war and, and he got out, he was, he was freed and he made it back home. But because of the trauma of that time there, he became an alcoholic. He just wanted to numb it. And he was miserable and he talked about how he absolutely hated his captors with every fiber of his being. He said, I hated them with a passion that's hard to describe. And uh, he was invited one night to a Billy Graham crusade back in, uh, in the late 40s after the war. Long story short, that night he gave his life to Christ. He realized that he, that he needed the forgiveness of Jesus and so he he trusted in Christ as Lord and Savior and the prayer that he prayed before he got saved is interesting. He said, Jesus, if you'll save me for the rest of my life, I'll do anything you want me to do. If you'll save me for the rest of my life, I'll do anything you want me to do. And Jesus saved him. He said it was one of those cool stories where the alcoholism just went away overnight and he realized that he had been radically saved. And, and I was sort of thinking about his life. He realized that he'd never really forgiven those men that had tortured him so mercilessly. And so he prayed for the, forgive, uh, for the power to forgive those people and he eventually did it. He forgave his captors in his heart. He said he was reading his Bible one day and he said very clearly, I, I, I sensed the spirit tell me that it wasn't enough just to say that I forgave him. But that Jesus, when, when he was talking about how we deal with our oppressors, he says, you don't just walk a mile, you walk two miles And so he became convicted that he needed to actually get on an airplane and go to Japan and actually see them face to face and and, and ask for, rather, you know, tell them that he forgave them. And so he got on a plane in 1950, he flew all the way to Tokyo. He found General MacArthur's office. He found the list, because he remembered their names, of all the people that had done all those horrible things to him. He found where they were in the prison and he went to them and he said one by one, he went to them and he just sat down and he just talked to them. He said, I told him about Jesus, told him my story. And the last thing I told him is I, f- I forgive him. I forgive him in the same way that Jesus has forgiven me. Incredible story. He said the response was unbelievable. It was profound. He said a lot of the guys broke down. A lot of them cried. A lot of them begged that he would forgive them. And I was thinking about, um, I was thinking about um, how long and how far he went to accomplish that. He didn't just travel a mile, he traveled all the way to Tokyo to do it. Why? Why would he do that? He didn't have to. Why would he do it? And he actually answered that question in 19, or or rather when he was 95 years old, it was at the end of his life, and this interviewer asked him, how did you do this? Why did you do this? Why did you go to these men that tortured you so incredibly and look at each one of them and say, forgive them? And he actually told them about Jesus, and then he quoted a quote. And um, and this is the quote, and it's just beautiful. This is what this 95-year-old man said. He said, forgiveness is the fragrance that the violet sheds on the heel that has crushed it. Isn't that good? Forgiveness is the fragrance that the violet 
sheds on the heel that has crushed us. And so what Jesus is, is teaching us here in this, in this text, what he's showing us here is that when he really transforms us, when he actually gets a hold of your heart, when he puts his spirit inside of you, when we're crushed by the boot heel of oppression, the fragrance that comes forth is the fragrance of forgiveness. And Louis Zamperini traveled literally thousands of miles to do it. Why? Because when experiencing injustice, citizens of the kingdom respond with humanizing humility. Guys, this is crazy stuff. I told you at the beginning of the minute, almost done here. Jesus is saying some radically countercultural things. When you're insulted, the last thing in the world that you wanna do, it is so difficult to respond by turning the other cheek with disarming dignity. When someone takes something from you, when they steal from you, when they rob from you, how crazy is it to respond with radical generosity? When someone abuses their power, that might be the worst, when they abuse their power, treat you like a second-class citizen, how in the world do you turn around and serve them to a greater degree than they even asked you? And guys, the answer to the question, the answer to the question is that you won't do those things unless you look to the cross. They're just too hard. They're just too contrary to your nature. It just doesn't make any sense unless you look to the cross. And when you look to the cross, after somebody insults you, you'll be able to respond with disarming dignity because as you look at your Lord and Savior who was mocked and beaten and stripped naked and was being crucified and was, was about to die, he never threatened, he never cursed, he never retaliated, and he could have. The scripture says, Peter tells us that all he did the entire time, he kept his mouth shut and he just kept entrusting God who was gonna judge righteously. The only way you'll ever turn the other cheek is when you look to the cross. The only way you'll ever, ever respond with radical generosity to somebody that has taken from you is when you look to the cross and realize the radical generosity that Jesus gave to you. You see, one of the things that you gotta understand, guys, is that it was your sin that put Jesus on the cross. It was my sin that put Jesus on the cross. And so in a very real way, it was you and it was me that took Jesus' life from him. But how did he respond? When, when we took his life because he was bearing the burden of our sin, he responded by giving us in return something of even more value, eternal life. The only way you'll ever respond in generosity when somebody takes from you is when you look at the generosity that he showed you on the cross. And lastly, it's this. How in the world, when somebody forces you to walk a mile, when someone treats you like a slave, how in the world do you respond with humanizing humility? How do you walk that extra mile? The only way that you'll ever do it is when you look to the cross. Because when you look to the cross, you'll realize that Jesus didn't just walk a mile to bear the burden of your sin. Jesus didn't even walk two miles to bear the burden of your sin. Jesus traveled all the way from heaven to earth. He traveled an infinite way to carry for you the burden 
of your sin. And when you look to the cross and that hits you, then you'll know what to do. And so when you leave here today, guys, and you you begin to live your life, and, and listen, here's the thing, insult's coming. You may be walking through it right now. Evil's coming, and justice is coming. I promise you, when it does, turn your eyes to Jesus. It'll be the only way you'll ever live this stuff out. And when you do, when you look at the cross, and you look at the way he responded to you, it'll be the greatest joy of your life to respond to the evil of the world the way that that he did. And so this world, guys, it's been plucking out eyes and it's been knocking out teeth for a really long time. And I don't know if you've noticed, but it's not working. It's not working. What this world desperately needs, what this world desperately needs is the aroma of a crushed violet. And Jesus says, that's what you are. So let's pray. Go ahead and bow your heads and close your eyes and and I wanna just take a second and I wanna just speak to anybody here that's never in their life trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and as their Savior. Maybe you're here and you've never looked to the cross. Saw what Jesus went through to to pay the penalty of your sins so that you could be completely forgiven and, and be in relationship with God. If that's you today, I just, in the best way you know how, just tell the Lord, Lord, I, there's no way I can do this unless you save me. Just like Louis Zimperini said, God, I need you to save me. And, and he'll take care of the rest. If you're here and, and you're walking through a time of where you're experiencing evil or insult or hurt, maybe today just pray that the Lord would give you the power and the ability to respond in the way that Jesus did. And for all of us, let's remember that Jesus said that we're the light of the world and a city on a hill cannot be hidden. And he says, let your light so shine before men that they would see the way that you live and they'd turn and praise your Father in heaven Father, I ask you, Lord, that we would be people that show the world a different way. God, this world is dying to know a different way and you've shown it to us. Lord Jesus, help us live it out. We simply cannot do it apart from you. So in those moments when we leave here and the insult comes and the evil comes and the injustice comes, let us remember the cross and show this world your love. God, we ask these things today in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, church, let's stand together. Let's worship him.